reminds me of the time the little boy fell into the barrel of molasses and immediately prayed, Oh, Lord, make my tongue equal to the occasion. (laughs) I know there is power in this room beyond any of our imaginations. And if I can make some contribution, however small it may be, to your work, to your determination to keep serving the Lord as a proclaimer of his word, then I should be very grateful for this privilege and opportunity. I know it takes a lot of work to get ready for something like this. And I know you appreciate, as I do, Alan Webster for all the many hours he puts into polishing the pulpit. And Alan has some people that help him, and I know we're all grateful to them. I've told folks, I think Alan Webster is the most creative fellow I've ever met in my life. It, it is utterly amazing to me how much he can get done and do it well. Uh, the titles of a lot of his tracks, that's creativity. I mean, it has appeal and uh, on and on. And so I'm, I'll just say this, I am glad he's on our side. <laughs> now, we're talking about folks leaving the Lord's church. In any community where the church has existed for any length of time, I promise you there are people who no longer are faithful to the Lord and to his church. And and I don't know of any way to dichotomize this and say, well, you can be faithful to the Lord and, and not faithful to his church. I say that fully aware that if you look at the statistics, there are a number of people in America who claim to be religious that don't attend any kind of so-called worship service. In fact, um, if you read a book like uh, Stephen Carter's book, The Culture of Disbelief, he's on the law faculty up at Yale, he asserts in that book that 90% of the American people claim to believe in God. But then you look at the number of people who claim affiliation with some religious organization, and it'll run something like 44 to 49%. So even with new math, I don't think you could get a half of the people attending some kind of religious service. I've preached in a number of different areas, a few different states, and every place I have worked, I have found people that were no longer faithful to the Lord and his church. Those, those belong together. You cannot be unfaithful to the church and faithful to Christ because the church is the body of Christ. You've read it, Colossians 1.18, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. A thing that's been of interest to me, and I wish so much that I had kept a record of this, and I pass this on urging you to keep a record of this because someday you can write a book about it. I wish I had kept a record of every excuse folks have given me for not being faithful. Uh, they, they have been very interesting, ranging all the way from I just can't be in crowds. Now, they don't put exceptions. They accept at ball games and going down to the supermarket. And, but I just can't be in crowds. They, they upset me. All the way to, well, you know, somebody said something that hurt my feelings, and I haven't been back. Now, if you preachers operated with that kind of sensitivity, you'd quit preaching. 
If every time somebody said something to you or about you that was critical and unkind and unthoughted, you, you would already given up. In fact, the only people in the church that I know that never have anything critical said to them or about them are elders. People never say, oh, yeah, you're with me, just checking, <laughs> just checking to be real sure you were awake. You know, if some of the things that have been said to elders in four years of church buildings and in aisles of church buildings, it's really enough to make angels weep. Men that are watching after the souls of the people of God. But please start keeping a record of all these criticisms. My plan in working has been, if I, if I go into a new work, one of my first announcements will be, I want the names and addresses of all the unfaithful members. And that's where I begin my work. Now, the congregation where I'm presently working, been there, this is my third year. That was one of my first announcements. Give me the names and the addresses of all the people that no longer are faithfully attending. Now, I've been to see those folks. I've looked them in the eye. Some of them I have visited several times trying to get them to come back to the Lord and be faithful to the Lord and his church. I will say to you up to this point, it's the only place I've ever worked where up to this point I've not been able to get a single person to be restored. Other places, it's been interesting how many doors were opened as I would work with this person who was unfaithful and try to get them to come back. I would learn that they had relatives who were in a similar situation or relatives who needed to obey the gospel. It would open many, many doors. But I'm telling you, this is a real problem. I, I don't have any statistics to give you. I recall back in the 50s hearing a brother speak who'd done work in the Detroit area, and he asserted at that time there were approximately 10,000 members of the Lord's Church who were no longer faithful, and, and they were living in the Detroit area. Now, I never asked him how he came up with that figure, but I am confident that this is a problem where you preach. It's a problem brotherhood-wide of people becoming unfaithful. What I'm going to do now is not deal with their excuses. Because excuses can be a type of facade behind which people will conceal themselves. I want to talk about reasons. Let's get down to reasons why people are unfaithful. And here I'm going to let the Lord tell us. And then after he tells us, we'll let his brother James tell us why people become unfaithful. Let's start with the power of a parable to give us the inside information. You've read it. You know it as well as I do. It's called many times the parable of the sower. You find it in Matthew 13. You find it in Luke chapter 8. You find it in Mark chapter 4. Buttrick in his book on the parables called it the parable of the soils. Because he says, really, the emphasis is upon the people that receive the word. There is a very interesting statement made by Jesus in Luke eight twelve in the parable of the sower. And that is, the seed is the word of God. And we surely are appreciative of the power that is in that word. 
There is power in the Word of God to bring a person to a sense of a lost condition. There's power in the Word to reveal to an individual the love and goodness and mercy and grace of God providing for that individual's salvation. There is power in the Word for motivation to lead an individual to want the Lord to become their Savior and therefore for that person to obey Him from a heart. There's power in that seed. However, as Jesus commenced to explain the parable of the sower, He said, some of the seed fell on rocky ground. Now, who is that Lord? That's the person that even with joy receives the word. Now, when you compare Matthew's account and Luke's account, uh, then you commence to see in Matthew chapter 13, 20 and 21, that the problem here with the seed planted on rocky ground is a lack of real conviction. So you look at Matthew's account and Luke's account, and you find that there are three things that cause the person to become unfaithful. It will be either temptations or troubles or persecutions. But what is the basic problem? Now, most folks, if not all folks, sometime in life have troubles. And we all have to encounter temptation. And sometimes there is trouble because of the word. Sometimes people will criticize you. They will make fun of you. They'll try to intimidate you if you have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The devil doesn't quit when a person becomes a child of God. He gets very, very active. One Sunday, I had baptized this lady, and and I told her before she left the meeting house that day in Nashville, I said, now I I need to caution you. You've got the devil really upset with you now. And he's going to start trying to discourage you. He's going to do everything he can to win you back to his domination. So keep your guard up. Just just be careful. That night after service, she came to me and said, would you believe it? I said, believe what? The devil's been trying to discourage me. When some of my folks found out that I had been baptized into Christ, they started ridiculing the church of Christ. And they started trying to intimidate me because I had become a member of it. Well, see, sometimes the trouble comes as a result of the word having been preached. I studied with a man in Janesville, Wisconsin years ago. And after several weeks, I was confident that Stan knew what the Lord expected him to do to be saved. And so after a study one night, I said, Stan, look. You know what the Lord wants you to do. Why don't you do it? He said, well, before I'm baptized, I want to study the book of Revelation. You want to study the book of Revelation? Yeah. I said, you want to do that next week? He said, suits me. So I went to his home the next week, and we started about 7 o'clock in Revelation 1-1. The next morning, approximately 4 o'clock, we ended up with the last verse of the last chapter. Of Revelation. Now, I'm not sure I explained in accurate detail all of the figures in the book of Revelation, but I took him through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and then Stan was baptized. However, he worked at a Chevrolet assembly plant 
And uh, he started taking his New Testament to work with him. And on breaks, he would read his New Testament. And he stopped going to the taverns with the boys. And he started taking a lot of ridicule. All kinds of name-calling, they started to heap upon him. And eventually, he seemed to crumble under it. Now, what's the basic problem here? I've seen people, and you've seen people, that would obey the gospel, and they would have a lot of trouble, but they'd hold on. I've seen people that have gone through a type of persecution. Sometimes it's a family persecution where people silently suffer. I I recall a situation where a lady wanted us to go and talk to her husband. She was a member of the Lord's Church. He hated the Church of Christ with a passion, and she said, he's threatening to kill me. Would you please go and talk to him? I know another situation. In fact, um, I went into this area to hold a meeting, and and I knew knew the situation well because it was in an area where I had uh, grown up. And this lady had obeyed the gospel, and she wanted her husband to become a Christian. And she asked the local preacher and me to go and talk to him. That was on Monday of the meeting. And uh, we went to the home, and he came to the kitchen door. And he informed us in no uncertain terms that he had no time for the blank-to-blank business, and he went out and slammed the door so hard it shook the house. Well... If I had time, I'd follow up on that story because by the end of the week, he wanted us to come back, and he was a different man. Uh, I went back with a measure of fear. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but when I walked in that time, he had a shiner on his face that you wouldn't believe. The whole side of his face was swollen, and he was meek as a little lamb. I later got some more information and put it all together. He became so belligerent during that week that on Wednesday night when his wife and children came in from the service, uh, he he got so upset that they literally ran out in the woods uh, thinking he might physically harm them. He thought they'd gone over to his daddy's house, and so he went over there raising a ruckus. And as he explained it to me, he said, You know, Tom, daddy came out, and he hit me upside the head with a little piece of board. Uh, I thought... Two before, maybe, or two by six, but it certainly got his attention. Now, now here's a lady, and, and you may have worked with people in similar circumstances. Uh, here's a lady who was going through some trouble. Sometimes people go through trouble, they go through persecution, and certainly people face temptation, and yet they hold on, and they don't quit. But why do some folks quit and some folks hold on? The answer is the conviction of the person. There may have been an intellectual conversion without the heart being converted. Now, we all surely appreciate the necessity of understanding the truth. They they hear and they understand. Now, Jesus could quote here from Isaiah and say, this people's heart is wax gross. This is how I introduce, you know, this parable. This people's heart is wax gross. Their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Lest in time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. The understanding is an essential. The intellectual grasp is vital. But 
That's not the end of the story. You know Romans 6, 17, 18. Paul said you obeyed from what? The heart. The heart has to be involved. And uh, I, don't, I don't know hearts. God knows hearts. I, I don't know hearts. So I think, all right, this person, they understand, they've been baptized, and so it's a conversion that has involved not just the intellect, it's also involved the heart. They love the Lord with all their hearts. They're dedicated to him now, and come what may, they are going to be faithful to him. But if it's not a real conversion, the person's not going to pay the price. Now, we're talking about reasons why folks become unfaithful. Not their excuses, reasons. Now, let's skip on down to the thorny ground. And I'm taking Luke's account here in Luke 8 and 14. Here is the person, Jesus says, that receives the word. They receive it with joy. And yet, they don't hold out. They, they are not faithful. What happens? One of three things. Either it will be the cares of this life or the pleasures of this life or the deceitfulness of riches. Now, here's a person that's been converted, and yet they, they don't have the internal spiritual strength to withstand the thorns of life, if you please, the choking thorns. Now, look at the cares. A care is something that within itself is, is perfectly legitimate. For example, is it wrong for a man to have a job? Well, no. If a man doesn't provide for his own, he denies the faith and is worse than an infidel. Is, is a job wrong? Not necessarily. But how many times have people imagined you know, I, I really don't have time for it because of my job responsibilities. Now, we've tried, in this country at least, to help people in those situations, either by having a very early service so they can attend a worship assembly and then go on to the job, or having a Sunday evening service and having the Lord's Supper so they can still come and worship and commune having had the responsibility of their job. Now, in some other countries, they have to arrange that a little differently at times. They have to vary the times when they come together on the Lord's Day. And uh, you, you take countries where the Sabbath is still uh, observed, and, and even by people in business, that, that really poses a problem for God's people to find a time on the Lord's Day, but that time can be found. But it could be a profession. I've had doctors to tell me, for example, well, see, I don't come because people at church are wanting me to diagnose their ailments. Uh, th that's hard for me to imagine. You know, there's a time and place for everything. And, and I don't want to go up to a doctor at the close of a worship assembly and say, Doctor, I, I got a backache. Can you tell me exactly what is wrong with me? Now, someone was telling me about a doctor and a lawyer that were having lunch together one day, and this uh, this doctor went up to the salad bar to, to get another salad, and this lady was one of his patients, and she got to talking to him about all of her ailments and problems, and she said, Doctor, what, what do you think is wrong with me? Well, it kind of upset him, and he came back and told his lawyer friend, said, you know what that woman wanted me to do? What? She wanted me to diagnose her case here in, in this restaurant. He said, 
what would you do about that? He said, I'd send her a bill for that. He said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to send her a bill. And he did. And then he got a bill from the lawyer for giving him the counsel as to what he ought to do. So, um, but I've had doctors to tell me that's the reason they don't come service, because folks are wanting them to diagnose their case. But I'm going to tell you something. I've preached at places where there were a lot of doctors that, that attended, and they attended faithfully. I remember holding a meeting years ago in Hearn, Texas, and I stayed in the home of the doctor that owned the little hospital in that town, Dr. Boyd. I still remember him, remember this good man and his wife with appreciation. Now, the hospital was not far from the church building, and there was a little red light over a middle door in that church building, which was to be a signal for him if he had an emergency. But that was back when we held meetings Sunday through Friday. And you know, he didn't miss a single service, didn't have an emergency the whole week. Uh, I, I've known quite a few good men who practiced medicine but still had time to worship and serve God. This, but it could be a care. Uh, just letting something that within itself is, is perfectly legitimate, it just becomes so dominant in my value system that it leads me away from faithfully worshiping and serving the Lord. Now, what about the pleasures of this life? God is not anti-pleasure. I know, because there's some things that bring God pleasure, right? D didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe? See, the, the preaching of the Word of God brings God pleasure. And, and there have been some people that have pleased God. You've read Hebrews 11 about Enoch. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he what? He pleased God. Now, there's a tremendous implication in a man that wants to please God. When John wrote, for example, we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight, the implication in that is that you love God. If you love someone, you want to do things that please them. So God is not anti-pleasure. But the pleasure here that leads people away from faithfulness to Christ is the pleasure of this life, the pleasure that the world has to offer. Now, some folks get so caught up in the pleasures of this life. For sports, for example. Now, I like sports. I went to a ball game Saturday. Only saw one player. He was wearing number 24. It was not a college game. In fact, not even a high school game. These were elementary fellows playing. And the only fellow I saw was my grandson. I, he's the greatest player they had out there. And I told him when it was over how proud I was. I mean, man, he was playing cornerback on defense and tailback on offense. Great player. But um, I like sports. I really do. But I promise you, brethren, America is getting this close to making an idol out of sports. We're that close. We're going to have to start warning people about the danger of an overemphasis on sports. I drove into Tullahoma, Tennessee a few years ago to start a meeting one Sunday morning. And as I drove in on my left, there must have been at least four ball diamonds, nine o'clock, Sunday morning, 
all of them loaded with young people I would judge to be anywhere from 12 to 14 years of age. They, they were having a, a, a ball tournament. And, and I opened the meeting that morning by saying, when I drove into Tullahoma this morning, I saw a sad sight, and I, I related to them what I had seen. Young people that should have been in a Bible class, they're out on a ball diamond. So you're anti-ball. No, I like ball. I, I really do. But I'm telling you, the pleasures of this life can become so dominant in the thinking of some folks that they don't have time for God. If, if they do, it's just kind of like accidental, you know. It's after, it's after the game. Now, what about the deceitfulness of riches? Riches are deceitful because they offer a security that they really cannot provide. There was, a, there was a fellow one time that was so concerned about his riches that he interrupted Jesus while the Lord was teaching. And he wanted Jesus to divide an inheritance that this fellow had and that his brother had. He said, we want you to divide this inheritance. And the Lord in a nice way said, I paraphrase, look, man, I didn't come to earth for that kind of thing. But while we're on the subject, I will say this to you, Luke 12 and 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. They call it greed today. Covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Now, so far as I know, Bill Gates is the richest man in this country, perhaps in the world. We're talking about over $50 billion dollars. I read some time ago that one day with the decline of the stock market, he lost something like $3 billion. That's more money than I have made teaching school uh, for 35 years of my life, $3 billion. Are you still with me? <laughs> but uh, riches are deceitful because a fellow thinks, you know, if I get all of this money, I'm going to be satisfied. And he's not. He has to have more and more. If, if the only thing you have finally is determined by how much money you are controlling at the moment, if that's it, uh, Sister Peggy, well, at one time, our sister in Christ, Sister Peggy Lee, had a song, Is This All There Is? That's going to be your song. Is This All There Is? And, and the insecurity of securities. I tell you, it's, uh, it's not quite as secure as folks may think that it is. Greed is, is really impacting this country negatively. You know, there are folks that wring their hands over provisions for the elderly. They're, they're medical provisions. If you could get greed out of it, well, everybody could be taken care of. But it's the greed that's ripping it off. I was in a meeting down in Florida, well, I was speaking at the School of Preaching, and they wanted me to come on Wednesday night over to this town, I forget the name of it, and speak. But when I drove up to where they told me the church building was, I thought, this doesn't look like a church building. It looks like an office building. It, it had been the office of two doctors. And um, they were caught ripping off Medicare, and they're now in prison where they ought to be. But greed, man, it, it gets into corporations and, and a lot of people lose their life savings because somebody is greedy. The deceitfulness of riches. 
Now, when Jesus went on and, and illustrated his point with that story, you know, the, the rich farmer in prospect of his forthcoming harvest said his barns were inadequate. I'll tear them down, build bigger barns, store up all this, my goods, and say to my soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Here is God's appraisal of this man who had his own personal estimation. Verse 21, God said, thou fool. Now, when God calls you a fool, he's got your number. Thy fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee, and who shall all of these things, look at that word now, things be which thou hast provided. So is every man, and here's the point, so is every man that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is he? He's a fool. Why? Because he's going to leave it all one day. He won't take anything with him. Now, you've heard the old story, the fellow at the point of death telling his wife, go get all my money out of the bank, put it in the attic, and I'll get it on my way up. And after the funeral, when she checked, it was still there. She said, perhaps I should have put it in the basement. But when we leave, we leave it all. I read in an old book one time, we brought nothing into this world, and it's for certain we'll carry nothing out. And that's exactly the way it is. Now, the day you see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, call me, collect, and tell me where you saw it, and I'll send you a free book. Now, here's a hearse going to the cemetery pulling a U-Haul trailer. I'll be happy to send you a free book with a damaged cover. So all you got to do is just <laughs> let me know. Why do people really now become unfaithful? It's going to be a lack of real conversion. Or it's going to be a situation where people let, they let the cares of this life or the pleasures of this life or the deceitfulness of riches choke the impact of that word in their hearts and lives and therefore they no longer are faithful. Now, when I go talk to somebody that's not faithful, this is where I'm operating. Could be trouble. I'd been to see this man. He's, he's in the medical world. I'd been to see him a number of times at his office, talked to his wife several times. Last time I was over at their home, and I knew, I knew they'd had some trouble. They'd had a son that was killed in an accident, their only son. That's real trouble. So I just laid it on the table. I said, well... I sure hope you're not mad at God. And she says, well, I'm not, but pointed to him, says, I think he is. Now, you know, if, if you ask them, why don't you attend anymore? Why aren't, why aren't you faithful? I doubt seriously if they would tell you, we're upset with God. We're mad at God. But a lot of times what people tell you is just an excuse. When you look at what Jesus says, you're dealing with reasons. Look for reasons. Now, we're going to let James supplement what Jesus said. We'll go to his brother in the book of James. And I want to start at the back of James and come back to the front, and, and you'll see why. James concluded this powerful, inspired document with these words. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and I want to pause and point out, if you looked at the meaning of the word translated err, it's the same word from which we get our English word planet. It's just a wanderer out there. 
Brethren, if any of you err from the truth, now look at this. You have an objective standard for evaluation. You have a truth. How, how do you know if a person is unfaithful? Well, you've got a standard. You've got the truth. Look at the truth of God. So, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, there's a need of conversion. Just like a person who's never become a child of God needs converting, here's a person that needs what? They need converting. It may be that they were not really converted in the first place, and they need conversion. They need the heart as well as the intellect converted. Or it may be that this person has fallen victim to some of the thorns that have choked the impact of the word, and they need to be converted. They need to be turned back to the Lord. And one convert him, he says, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way. Well, see, unfaithfulness is not one of the, the real serious sins, that there's some serious sins, you know, like adultery and murder and rape and uh, robbing. But, you know, unfaithfulness, that's... Don't you run into this sometimes? People just act like being unfaithful is not all that serious, you know. Just, it happens to a lot of people, but it is serious. It's a sin. He that converted the sinner... From the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Some folks have thought James concluded rather abruptly there. But actually what he's done, he's given you a summary statement in those two verses of this whole beautiful letter. So let's go back now to chapter 1 and let James, by inspiration, tell us why do people really become unfaithful? James 1 and verse 2, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or literally into much testing. Knowing this, that the trial of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing doubting or wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven by the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. So here's the first thing James says that really causes folks to become unfaithful. Trials. Trials, burdens, testing of faith. Let me ask you, has your faith ever been tested? I mean, really tested. Now, the question is not, did you ever sit in a class where someone made fun of your faith? Uh, the question is not, did you ever read something from an unbeliever that just you, you couldn't get the answer to at that time? Maybe, maybe he's got a real... A real dilemma for me here. Did you ever? That, that's not my question. My question is, has your faith ever been tested? Have you ever buried a child? That'll test your faith. Been there. Have you ever been terminated from a work? Uh, I've managed to kind of stay ahead of the, the game in some situations. <laughs> I knew the time had come when I had to part company with World Radio. But they terminated it. I knew it had to be done, but it still hurt when they did it. Now, I talked to a lot of preachers who are terminated from works. They come see me. 
I, I think they do because they think I care. And the truth is I do. And I've seen some of them, they look like whip dogs. Uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to really deal with a little click in a congregation that wants you out. It, it's, it's really hard. And uh, some of the things that are done to you in, quote, Christian love, you know, Christian love, uh, love, what, what's that? I read in a book one time, love suffers long and is kind. That's, you know, things they write about you on the back of attendance cards. Been there and done this or experienced this. And some of those things can be extremely cutting and very hurt. Anonymous letters. Have you ever gotten an anonymous letter? <laughs> I see some of you agree. Yeah, I used to keep those things in a folder. I quit a few years ago. Folder got too big. <laughs> but uh, I used to get those things, and they would just, man, I lost many a night of sleep. Because somebody had written me an anonymous letter just telling me what a low-down, sorry rascal I am. And um, I kept them because I, I thought if I ever think I'm getting the big head, all I've got to do is pull that folder and read about two of those, and God has me right back down to earth. But, um, you know, the things that are said about you, the criticisms your family has to take, and you're terminated from a work. I could give you the name of a brother. I'm as confident as I'm standing here. He's in his grave today because he died from a broken heart. He was terminated from a work after his children were already in school. And he didn't have any prospect of another work at the time. He, had, he went into secular work to support his family. It crushed him. It, it literally broke his heart. And I had a funeral director in Henderson, Tennessee, to tell me one time, he said, Tom, I am confident I've buried more people that died of broken heart than anything else. So I, I'm, I'm happy to tell you this brother didn't give up. He found a little country congregation where he could preach on the Lord's days and still render a service and then do the secular work and support his family. When I ask you, has your faith ever been tested, have you ever been put through a real family crisis? I mean a real crisis. That'll test your faith. You will be tempted to cut and run. You will be tempted to throw up your hands in defeat. You'll be tempted to think it's all down the tube. It's all over. And you'll start wondering, well, you know, I talked to God a lot about this. I sure have asked his help repeatedly about it. A dear friend of mine, now in eternity, told me that he and his wife sat in an emergency room waiting for the doctor to come out and tell them if their son was going to live or die. Their only son, they had two daughters, only son. And the son had had a lot of problems. I mean, I knew about a lot of his problems. So I felt close enough to my friend that I could, I could lay the question on him. I said, uh, how about your love for God? 
He said, well, I still love him. But that night in that emergency room, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, we've prayed many times about this. Where was God? But so far as I know, that man held on to his faith until he went into eternity. You know why I believe the Holy Spirit inspired James to put this as number one? Why people err from the truth? It is number one. Troubles. Test, I mean, real testing faith troubles. He says it's the trial of your faith. Now, when the apostle Peter wrote about it, in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you start with verse 5, he'll say, he says, you're kept by the power of God through faith. Under salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. When you greatly rejoice, though now if need be for a season, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You look at that passage. Trials, troubles, trying your faith, and joy and rejoicing. Incredible. No, no, not necessarily. Not if you know that a God will see you through, that God still loves you. Not if you know that out of this furnace of fire, I can be refined in my soul. That the weaknesses and impurities in my life can come to the front and I can know where I have to work to become real in God's sight. There's a potential blessing. But some folks don't react that way. And I don't want to stand and be critical. Given the same set of, set of circumstances... I might be right there with them. I have a close relative in Alabama that accidentally shot and killed his little 12-year-old boy. Had one little boy and he killed him. He's had a lot of troubles. He's had a lot of troubles. Given the same circumstances, I probably would myself. But i got to leave that. I want to skip on down to verse 8 quickly. Why, why, what are the real reasons people become unfaithful? James says, a, double man, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, and the rich in that he is made low. For as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat than it withereth the grass, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So likewise shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Okay, now here's your two-minded person. The person gets torn between the things of this world, this life, and a relationship with the Lord and eternal life. When Jesus talked about the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, he used the word life from which we get our word biology, a study of life. But when Jesus said, I came that they might have life, John 10, 10, it's a different word. And so when you think about people that are torn between this life and serving God, 
What did Jesus say about serving two masters? He said, you can do it, but it's going to be very... No, you can't. No man, he said, can serve two masters. Either he'll love the one, hate the other, hold to one, despise the other. You cannot. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? You cannot serve God in mammon or riches, Matthew 6 and 24. So here is where we've seen brethren become unfaithful. Uh, Tom, I'm going to tell you something. Getting a business going is very demanding of your time. It, it's taking all of my time. It's taking all of my energy. And, and, and one day, I, I hope to have this thing all settled and going, and, and then I'll have time. But right now, I just don't have time for it. Getting a new profession going is, is a very demanding thing. Man, you just don't understand. But once I get it going, then, uh, then I'm going to have double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, quickly, in the third place, and what time should I be through? Uh, 11.15? I'm just about there. I only have about two minutes left then. I'll just have time to mention this last one. I'm, I'm already over, and I apologize for that. But uh, if you start in verse 12 of James 1, he says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he's tried, he shall shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away after his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Erring? Do not err. My beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, this is a different kind of temptation. This is the old solicitation to sin against God. And uh, I wish I had time to talk about efforts that folks have made to escape temptation, like building big high walls and calling them monasteries or convents and getting in behind those and then Satan couldn't get to them, or getting behind a, a imaginary wall of Christian education. And I'm not being critical. You know, it was my bread and butter for 34 years of my life. But I'm going to tell you something. It's not a wall that keeps temptation out. And isolation. Where was Jesus when the devil came to out in the wilderness? Who were his companions, the wild animals? The devil found him. So isolation is not the solution to the problem of temptation. What is the solution? Information from the Lord, inspired information. And it starts out with the right motivation, and that's loving God. See, if, if I really love God, I don't want to break his heart. There's a promised crown to those that love him. And then I just have to get my smarts up. And so he says, learn how it works. The potential is within you. The enticement the devil will have for you. And unless there's control of your passions and what is lust but uncontrolled desire. There will be the lust if you're not careful. There will be the enticement. The, the trap will be baited. And when those two things come together, the result is going to be sin. But if you know that, then there's a safeguard at the point of your self-control. And there's a safeguard in unmasking the enticement. It's not what it's... Sin offers what it cannot give. It gives what it cannot... It, it offers what it cannot give and gives what it did not offer. So... It's information. 
Well, if I had time, I'd go on down and show you that some folks substitute hearing for doing the word. And James says, don't do that. Be, be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. And, and some people get confused about the nature of true religion. But if you'll just read through the book of James and look at every, go into James 2 and, and, and look at what he says about the assembly and people playing favorites and assemblies. And that's one reason why some folks give up and quit. They're, they're mistreated in assemblies. Somebody talks about the clothes they had on. Uh, they're not nice enough or, or what have you. And um, it, it hurts people. But that's, that's another subject. The tongue, James 3, things that are said to folks that, that are so hurtful and, and, and break their hearts. And um, that, that causes some. And then the ongoing battle he discussed in chapter 4. And um, the mistreatment that sometimes people have to experience in chapter 5. It's all laid out right there in the book of James. It's, it's an explanation, really, of the real reasons why brethren err. But, but I want to encourage us, let's do what we can to convert the erring. Now, one of the things we did at Creve Hall to try to convert the erring in addition to personal visits. The elders wrote each person a personal letter from the elders. And they sent them a copy of that book that I, did, that I did, The Ways of Wonders, and said, please read this book. The last service that I preached there on Sunday night, I'll never will forget this elderly man walking down the aisle, and as I met him, he said, I read that book, and I'm coming home. And I thought, you, you just paid me for writing that book. One soul is worth it. I just beg you, try to identify the unfaithful and go to them. I'm not telling you to do something I don't do. Go to them and try to win them back. Because the soul of a brother or sister that's unfaithful is worth just as much in God's sight as the person who's never obeyed the gospel. You believe that and I believe that. Thank you for your good attention.